Wow, 75 episodes in. Today's episode with Sefu Bernard is brought to you by Good Light Clothing and Parkside Brewery. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to A Hoops Journey. I'm going to introduce our uh, guest today in the most unique way. I was doing a little bit of research and reading, and there was a quote on his website that really stuck with me. even uses the word journey in it. And I'm really looking forward to chatting with this young man about uh, where the game of hoops has taken him because his resume is crazy. And I know we this could be a five-hour episode. It said, my path has been anything but straight. Roadblocks, construction, a few flat tires, outdated maps, and even engine troubles all threatened to derail my journey in its early years. Yet the constants were the resilience of my enthusiasm, consistency of my hustle, the intense flows of my attention. Focus of my intention. Can't even read my own printing. And that, when I was reading, I had a huge smile on my face. I love the energy. Love that he, he probably, when he was typing it, thought of a hoops journey. He knew it was going to be coming around, and that's why he put the word journey in there. The current director of player development with the uh, Washington Mystics in the WNBA, we are thrilled to have Mr. Sefu Bernard with us this evening. How are you, sir? I am great. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Appreciate Chet connecting us. Um, it's been a fun little thing. You know, he's someone that I have literally never met face-to-face, just sort of through the internet and the game of basketball and got his number and, you know, just sort of connections through connections as you know how it works. And and here we are, man. So this is what's been really the fun part about the show is, you know, I get to meet you online before I even get to meet him face-to-face. So shout out to him for connecting us and Let's check in with you. You're out, you're in the Cayman and doing your thing. And how's life for you and your family these days? Good. I just got back. Uh, our season just wrapped up. It was a you know a trying season for me because typically I would bounce back and forth between DC and Cayman and still be able to be around and do my most important job, which is uh, being a dad, as you know. With uh, the quarantine restrictions coming back into Cayman, that was tough. So I spent the better part of uh, five plus months in DC with the team, which was great for team related things, but uh, challenging when it comes to family. So being back on island and having a chance to reconnect has been been great. It's been uh, really rewarding and, uh, and fulfilling. Great, man. Those, uh, you know, those hugs or those little moments that maybe we took for granted sometimes kind of just mean that much more, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I cherish them all. I bet you're an amazing father. So man let's get right into it who are you where are you from tell us about you know your your life as a young person and then how basketball which has been a huge component to your life but I also love the other side of you kind of just that leadership component and strong communication lots of things I'd love to get into with you today but tell us about yourself and your story you know being a mainly west coast podcast we're doing our best to branch out across Canada and, and get as many cool stories as we can and yours is super unique so I'm gonna sit back and you you do you well, I appreciate it. I am from the other coast. <laughs> I'm originally from Toronto, Ontario. That uh, will always be home for me, regardless of 
where in the world life and basketball has taken me. You know, I'm Canadian through and through, and I, I wear it with pride wherever I go. I'm grateful for a, for a childhood that I had there and all the experiences that uh, led me to where I am right now. But uh, I'm an inner city kid from Toronto. Um, was born there, and um, my preteens, I actually ended up uh, in Freeport, Grand Bahamas. I say preteens, but uh, it was really between two and eight. Uh, I'd gone there and lived as a child, which was a really enriching experience, you know, just uh, being on a small island. And now, fast forward, I'm back on a small island. It's a full circle moment, but for a kid where you can just kind of roll out, wear shorts and shirts and, and run out, that was great. But um, returned to Toronto at eight, and that's where really sport for me took off. In Freeport, I did judo. I played a little baseball, but there was nothing really structured at that age for me. We didn't do it, and then plopped down in the Keelan Wilson area in in downtown Toronto in a 15-story building that was just packed with kids, man. (laughs) Like, that was our playground. I didn't do any camps. I'd say pre-teens, I didn't do any camps. We we woke up and we went outside and kids just met up and we played. We played wall ball to street hockey to baseball. We swam, we rode our bikes, we skateboarded. We, I mean, we just did whatever the season allowed you to do. And then even our summers were rec centers. And that was, that was it, I mean, we loved it. You show up in the rec center, they had a schedule, but largely you could just do whatever you wanted. And that's where I really started to fall in love with sport is that experience around all those all those people. I don't know in so many ways those experiences spoke to me and spoke through me as I as I just fell in love with moving and being active and just playing playing whatever. So we played it all as a kid and that was great. You know, as life went on, you know, my family is is from Jamaica. My my dad is a, is a footballer. He's a soccer guy. And uh, my brother and I, my older brother and I, we, you know, we played soccer growing up. And I mean, to be honest, I, I did what, what he did. You know, I was that kid looking up to an older brother. And so we played soccer and our dad took us out and we, he trained us and trained us hard. And we, we had a good time with it. And I loved, I loved soccer. Also, you know, we did karate. And I only share both of those because... To this day, my dad will say I was better at soccer and karate than I ever was at basketball. <laughs> and yet, when my when my brother went and played ball, I followed along and fell in love. And so that's what uh, that's what got me hooked. And so it's it's through the game that I've been able to experience so many wonderful life experiences. Such a fun way to live too, right? Like just most days in the summers or whatever, forgetting to even come home for lunch, you know? It's like just being able to be gone all day and just being exhausted by the end of it because you've done 20 different activities throughout the day and and hung out with your buddies the entire time. Oh, yeah. I mean, no question. We were latchkey kids at eight. My dad worked uh, for the TTC, which is, uh, you know, the, the metro system. We wanted to see him. We'd go find his bus route or we'd, you know... He'd let us know when he was on the subway and we'd go and find him. But other than that, you know, we knew when we had to be home and he wasn't asking us what we were doing and who we were doing it with. He had expectations and standards and we just went out and played. It's, um, you know, it's hard not to romanticize those times. They weren't perfect, but 
you know, now on the flip side, being a parent and uh, for me, like playdate is a swear word. You know, I just don't <laughs> like this idea. I'm like, you know, hey, hey, dad, can we set up a play date? And I'm like, no, you go and talk to your friend. Y'all work it out and tell me what time and where and I'll let you know if I can help. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's something to be said for <laughs> planning your days and organizing your time and just being bored and figuring it out. And uh, yeah, those are some things I, I miss. For sure. And when I hear myself talking like this, that's when I feel really old. I was going to say, I was. I didn't. I wanted you to finish your statement. I was like, <laughs> you're going to start getting called an old head here, man. That's what they call us, right? You start sounding, you know, careful. I hear you, man. For real. Yeah. <laughs> I'm embracing it. These yeah. guys make fun of me because I'm, I'm, I'm ventured into that, that bad dad joke mode. So. <laughs> My wife dropped that on me the other day, too. We were out somewhere and I said, uh, at a restaurant, I said something to the server and she said, you realize what you're sounding like? I was like, Oh my God, please like just keep me <laughs> up. Keep me in check with those. It's kind of unavoidable though, I think. Right. So they say, I don't yeah. know. It sneaks up on you. You don't even realize, realize it hits you. And, and then you look around and you realize what you've done. Now, just looking at you, you know, I'm going to make and jump to a few conclusions, which I shouldn't, but there are assumptions, but was it sport? Was it being around people? What, what were you just a natural people person? You can tell just by how you write, um, some of the interviews I've seen you on, you're a very engaging person. Where did you develop those skills or what, did it take time for you? Or, you know what I mean? Like, how did you get to a point where, because you look at your resume and the things that we'll get into about you, you've done a lot of different things. You've been in a lot of different roles. You've been able to adjust and, and grow and learn. And, and one of the things I really liked is that you said you're, you know, you're someone who always likes to grow and learn. But at a young age, were you just super extroverted? Did people follow you? Were you a follower? Was there a little bit of that skill set happening already? I definitely was not an extrovert as a kid coming up. There's no doubt about that. Anybody who would know me through that time would probably say the same. I do have cousins who would tell you I was a, a bit of a disturber and I and I caused <laughs> trouble, but that would be, you know, within the family. You could still be introverted and, and do that. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the term I've I've adopted or, or learned is uh, omnivert. Okay. And it's one that's rung true for me. And I think it, um, I never would have used it two years ago, but as I've learned more about it and uh, learned about some of the misconceptions about introversion uh, versus extroversion, I'm realizing uh, that one best sums me up, which, um, you know, I am and have always been, I think, uh, observant. And maybe it was a, uh, an expression of that introversion where I would just watch and see. And I was just observing to see how other people navigated through a space, how they handled themselves, maybe how I needed to show up to, to get through. But a lot of it was just straight curiosity. You know, even to this day, one of my favorite things to do, and actually it's one of the things I miss the most about being in Toronto, is just people watching. I've just always had a bent towards observing, watching, being curious. And as I went through life and I matured, I became more self-confident. Largely through sport, I learned eventually to find my voice mm -hmm. and how to use it, when to use it. But even still, I, I enjoy observing. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just watching. Sometimes it's listening. And so I think that's come through. Like um, I don't know if it's natural per se as much as it is um, enjoyable. I genuinely care about people. I don't know. I don't know how to say that without sounding 
whatever, arrogant or no, not, but no, no, no. I really, makes I, sense. I really do. And it's been a blessing and a curse for me. Sometimes it gets me in trouble um, <laughs> where somebody may say, Hey, you got to assert yourself or you need to you know, dominate this thing. And I'm like, well, that's just not how I want to do life. You know, I want to do it with somebody. I don't think everything needs to be this, this constant combative endeavor. It's taken a while, but you know, it, I've come to accept and actually hold it up as my superpower is, and it shows up in everything I do, you know, even from uh, as a, somebody who's involved in player development, I don't think you can access somebody, somebody's whole self, their complete self and get the fullest expression of them as an athlete without understanding them as a person. So, and it's the only way I know how to show up. I used to um, you know, make excuses for it. But now un- unapologetically, this is who I am. It's what I'm about. It kind of um, informs my approach. It's the lens through which I see the world. And um, yeah, I, you know, that's, I make no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It, uh, it rings true for me. Yeah, I love to hear too, like, you know, we've had a few people that have been involved in the pro game and things like that. And it's been super interesting. One thing that always comes back to, I teach a leadership class at my school. And I always say, there's one thing you can take away is that it's about relationships, right? And it's cool to hear that even at the pro level, I've got to be able to connect with this human being on some level before I can say, actually, this aspect of your game needs a little bit of work to complement this aspect of your game, right? It's so even, you know, I think even more with youth, we just assume that it's about relationships. And then when it becomes professional, well, it's like, let's just show up and work and we'll leave. And it's like, well, actually, no, I need to be able to connect to those people and they need to trust me and I need to trust them. And it's a working relationship. So if I'm making sense, what I'm saying. No, absolutely. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. I heard somebody phrase it. They said, you know, there's, there's two types of currency. They called it performance currency and relationship currency. And this rang true for me. Performance currency is is that thing that kind of gets you in the door. You know, it's your ability to perform the task, to do the job. It's the thing that kind of gets you noticed and will get you paid in the short term. But it's got a diminishing value, especially the higher up the performance spectrum you move or the more competitive the endeavor, because now you're also dealing with other high performers who have the ability to do a task, whatever that task may be, crunch numbers, put a ball through a hoop, I don't know, organize a concert, whatever that may be. But relationship currency is something that to me appreciates. In fact, it has, it increases geometrically, right? It's the thing to me that gets you to the opportunity that you didn't know was there. Because when you have done the work and you've invested in people and you've been authentic and genuine and you've consistently showed up in a way where you've invested in others, then those people who you've impacted are going to be the ones who are going to be, so to speak, holding your resume when you're not in the room. When a conversation comes up about an opportunity, they're the ones, it's that relationship you have that's going to differentiate you between somebody who is you know, on par with you from a task-specific standpoint. That's my view, and I think it always serves. Man, take him to church. Let's go. Love it. <laughs> free game, we call it here on A Hoops Journey. We call it free game. 
So those high school years, you're figuring yourself out, you know, being 16, 17, 18 years old, trying to, what does I want to do? What path do I want to go down? How do you start to use sport? Or did you know sport was going to lead you to where you went? You know, you go off to Windsor and, and figure some stuff out. Talk about that little process and what that was like for you. Because, you you know, there's some some cool stuff in there. And you got involved early too. Like I looking at your resume, you, you just threw yourself in there, whatever, right off the bat, huh? <laughs> well, not quite, not quite. You know, I, he's downplaying himself, ladies and gentlemen. For the record. <laughs> well, like if we can go back mm-hmm. and I appreciate, uh, you know, you shared that write up I had of talking about, you know, the off, off road and the beaten track and, you know, the bumps and bruises along the way. I mean, I mean, that really is my experience. You know, I, I, I had a, uh, an amazing high school basketball experience growing up in Toronto. We played a lot all over. I had some people who I am forever indebted to. You know, we had a guy, Jerry McGraw at Humberside Collegiate, who opened the, the gym for us seven in the morning, every morning for every year that I was at that school. He did it for dec- uh, over a decade plus before I got there. And he was doing it, and, you know, well after I was gone, he still might be doing, I don't know if he retired or not, but you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. without Jerry getting those extra reps, I mean, he did it every morning and then we played Friday after school, Jerry did it. And Mondays and Wednesday nights in the evenings, we played at Humberside from seven until whenever he wanted to go home. You know, like he had the keys to the gym and a lot of times he'd just say, Hey, lock off after you. And, you know, me and some close friends, we would, we'd play nonstop. Um, and I learned to play basketball, at least to think the game at Humberside. And then I went to school called Runnymede Collegiate, which um, at the yes. time was was a top high school basketball program and had some success there. And Canada for years. Yeah, I mean, Runnymede's known. I mean, Runnymede's a name out here. Everyone knows if you're involved in the game for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, no it was doubt. a great school. And, and I, I mean, I wasn't uh, a starter. I wasn't, uh, you know, I had to bump back. I was coming off the bench and I was, you know, just kind of fighting for minutes, but that experience taught me to compete. I was going to say, talk more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was just the competitive cauldron. I mean, you won't find experiences like that anymore. I mean, we, the gym would be open. Uh, (laughs) I got to be be careful. (laughs) Hey, well, let me put it to you like this. Runnymede had a double, a double gym. Okay. And gym classes would be going on on one side of the gym, you'd have 40 kids, 30 kids, whatever in the class. And if you were playing boys basketball at Humberside, you could show up at eight o'clock and play basketball all day on that other gym, gym court, (laughs) nonstop. (laughs) Now I'm not going to talk about classes and all that stuff. I don't, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I'm just saying we could play and those guys played and played hard. I mean, it was just that kind of environment, just a different kind of environment, at least different from any I had known. That's still education. <laughs> you know? yeah. it, was, it, it was a needed experience for me, you know, <laughs> but I, I share that because although from a basketball standpoint, it was an enriching experience. It was also the time where I had to double down and kind of figure things out, you know, coming up through high school, um, I always knew I wanted to teach. Mm. You know, I come from generational teachers. My grandmother taught for over 40 years. My mother got her PhD. She's an educator for decades. 
and teacher. And I thought, hey, what am I going to do? I'm going to teach. And so, but I went through school largely, largely not kind of thinking about the requirements to actually get into post-secondary. <laughs> you know, so I was busy playing ball and, and working, trying to, you know, make a little extra cash to, for things that I wanted to, you know, ex- to have. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't been doing the work academically. And so I actually took an extra year and a half to get my grades at a level that I could actually be admitted into university. And so during that time, basketball, organized basketball took a back seat. You know, we're, ta- we're talking days before AAU and real organized, you know, sport outside of school. And so I was playing pickup as I'd always done, you know, and I started refereeing and I fell in love with refereeing. No way. Yeah, I refereed Toronto High School basketball and below. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Plus, I loved the money. It was great money. Yeah. You know, those days you can make 26 bucks a game. And if you did it solo, you made time and a half. You know, I was like, this is good cash. You know, it was better than working at Foot Locker where I was, you know, working before. No doubt. When I showed up at the University of Windsor, you know, I, I don't know if I was on the radar before, but I was definitely off it after having been out of organized basketball for you know, over a year. And I remember going, I actually, the Sunday, the first Sunday I was in town, I went to a referees meeting. I was, that was my path. I was actually recognized as one of the top young officials in Toronto. And I was like, this is great. I can do this. This is my path through sport. I'm going to referee. And I went to a referees meeting on the, on the Sunday. And on the Monday, I went to play pickup ball at the U. And I remember sitting there on the edge of the court. I didn't know anybody at the school. And, you know, just who's got next and looking around and I knew my, my run was about to come. I was watching these guys and they were, they were good. And I remember turning to this guy beside me and I said, hey, so when does the varsity, when do they play? And the guy's like, what do you mean? I said, when, when, do, when do the varsity players play? And he was like, that guy's varsity, that guy's varsity, that guy's varsity. I said, wait a second. And I just grabbed my stuff. He's like, where are you going? We got next. I go, nah. I'm going to go find the coach. I need to try out for this team. Yeah, yeah. And that's how things worked out for me because I can't speak for everybody. But as a kid growing up in Toronto, I had never seen Canadian University basketball ever. You know, I I just never seen it. Nobody talked about it. It wasn't on TV. If it was, I wasn't watching it. it. You know, anything was NCAA driven. I knew nothing about Canadian University basketball. But when I sat there, I said, hey, I've been out of this game for a while playing pickup, but I think I can do this. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just knocked on the door, coach's door, Mike, Mike, Mike Havey, and I introduced myself. And he told me when the open run was. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And uh, I tried out for the team as a walk-on. And as luck would have it, I, I did end up making the team my first year. And I'm grateful for that experience. It was the best experience. I played five years at University of Windsor. Uh, my third year ended up starting and being a captain. It made some of my closest, the most cherished f- friendships, i.e. Chet. Uh, Chet and I had, you know, we came in at the same time, you know. You know, I, ha- I had a great experience. University of Windsor was the right university for me. Uh, at that life, I had the right coaches for me. And I couldn't have imagined having a more enriching experience there. And the relationships I um, developed there have lasted. That's awesome. I love it. It's funny what you say, too. You know, my last year eligibility was 2001, right? So same idea. It's like unless 
unless you get the final aid on TSN, there just was no exposure for the game back then, right? So it's interesting. You probably spent your whole life in Toronto just guessing, going from high school gym to high school gym, but never actually seeing university hoopers. And then you're like, wow, I love it. That's such a cool story. Yeah. And I would also say, though, the subculture of basketball at that time in Toronto wasn't about Canadian university basketball. Right. It, it wasn't. Like, anybody who was anybody in my sphere was thinking it was trying to get a, a D1 scholarship. Yeah. It was, the, it was, you know, the hoop dream before there was a hoop dream. <laughs> you know, I, I, I honestly, I never, I never even thought the closest I got to university basketball was sneaking into the Jewish community center, downtown Toronto, which was right by U of T, but I had never stepped foot on the campus of U of T. I'd never stepped foot on Ryerson you know, Ryerson at that time wasn't even a reference point for, for basketball. It isn't what it is now. You know, York University seemed like, I mean, it was at the top of the subway line. We didn't really go up there. I mean, that, <laughs> that was far. Like We played <laughs> Jane and Finch. We played Falstaff. We played, you know, all, most people won't know these places, but these are inner city spots. Like we played on outdoor courts. That's where the runs were. It was word of mouth. We rode our bicycle had our ball, you know, you showed up for these runs and you just had to own it. Like that was basketball. And then you'd hear about guys who made it. That's just how it was. I mean, I remember shagging balls as a probably 14, uh, maybe maybe 15 year old for uh, Gary Durant, Mm. you know, and that was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I mean, he was, he was winning the dunk off, you know, and he was at the JCC and, you know, I was passing with him and I'm looking at his body, his frame, and I'm like, oh my gosh. But that was the <laughs> summit, right? I couldn't tell you anybody who played university basketball. And it just shows how far things have come where you look at the programs, the quality of programs, the quality of player that's playing university basketball in Canada, even college basketball in mm-hmm. Canada. And, you know, I was talking to a young guy in and came in here who's who um, he aspires to play post-secondary. Uh, and I was like, I don't think I can make a team nowadays. I'm looking at these these players. These guys can they can who? Yeah. He would have said who's varsity and they would have been him, him. And you would have been like, OK, I'm leaving not to go talk to the coach. I'll just going to go to the rec center. <laughs> yeah. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> it's come a long way. That's cool, though. I mean, getting onto that university team and being someone who. Like, how was the transition? Obviously, you talked about in high school coming off the bench. So was it the same sort of thing? I'm just going to omnivert here. I'm going to look. I'm going to observe. We're going to spend my first couple of years. And then third year, you're a captain. Like, I, that says a lot to me, at least. It's about your character, right? So how was it going from someone not playing, you know, 40 minutes a game in high school to having a an impact in the locker room at the university level? Did you ever think like, whoa, or was it just you're still young and dumb and going through it all and trying to enjoy it? Well, definitely young and dumb and maybe a little arrogant to think that I could just walk down and, <laughs> Knock and make the team. Door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, not to, to, to glorify an experience, but I re- remember after I finished uh, my university experience, one of the longtime assistant coaches, Tim Elcombe, who was a phenomenal coach for me, he said, hey, Seth, you know you were the last cut. I was like, what do you mean? He said, your first and second year, you were the last cut for both of those teams. <laughs> and I guess it was an, it, it was an argument about oh, who yeah. they were going to take. 
And um, I had no idea. I just figured I made the team. You know, they announced the roster. I was like, yeah, I deserve to be on that roster. But, you know, I didn't play anything but garbage minutes my first year. The speed, the pace of the game was different. The size of player, you know, it's just not, it's not pickup. Coordination amongst the great teams. It was a learning curve. I didn't play my second year. You know, meaningful minutes. You know, yeah. I, what, what did uh, actually our, our coach said it? Uh, he said it well. You know, you're the uh, up twenty, down twenty kind of player. You know, that that was me. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. And, and my teammates, they'll they'll tell you. I was, I mean, I was competitive in the sense that I wanted to win, but I was also so competitive that I didn't hang my head. My my games were my practices. I was not the most skilled player, especially offensively. You know, but I knew I could defend and I didn't care. I just wanted to play. And so I cheered hard when I wasn't playing largely (laughs) because I wanted to get in, you know, and, you know, we have these moments actually it happened uh, this past season where I was getting angry at some of our players at the end of the bench. I'm like, you guys need, need to tell our starters to blow them out and get up 20 so you can get in the game or, (laughs) you know, go the other way. Some way you have to want to play, you know? (laughs) And that's probably just, you know, vestiges of just, just flashbacks to who I was as a player, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I just had to to scrap and claw and get mine. And, um, and so, yeah, it wasn't until my, I, you know, it was my third year when we started the regular season in January, where there was a lot of things, injuries, academic ineligibility, all of those honestly led to me being able to, to be there and just being, just sticking around long enough, being annoying long enough. Um, and persisting long enough. And then, um, yeah, probably I was halfway through the regular season that uh, I'd earned the starting spot and was able to, you know, hold on to it. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's nothing uh, glory days about it, but those are my days and I appreciate them. I think it's cool too the way that you're analyzing yourself and then what you do for a living now there had to have been something that you maybe weren't even picking up on like that you use now you know what i mean your player development and you you spent a lot of time observing picking up on players strengths weaknesses being a defender finding a role knowing that they that each person on the team matters you know one through twelve right and i think probably those experiences i don't know if i'm right or wrong but maybe there was something soaking in early on um, that got you to where you are now. And and I'm curious, when did you start to view, okay, I'm no longer going to be a teacher. Well, I mean, a coach is a teacher. Let's be honest with ourselves, right? But when did you start to think, or did you start to think differently on what you wanted to do for a career after basketball started to, the eligibility started to wind up? Things changed for me after my second year of university. Because I similarly, once I got into university, kind of bounced around in terms of academic focus from sociology to criminology. And I I just didn't have, it was more by default. I was thinking, Hey, what do I need to do to get into teacher's college? At some point from being around, like our our athletics program was around the faculty of human kinetics. And there were a number of people on the men's and the women's team that were in human kinetics. And I just kept kind of sniffing around. I'm like, that's interesting stuff. Hmm. And I had approached a gentleman who had tenure at the time, everybody said, you need to go and talk to Dr. Eves. Cecil Eves is his name. And he was one of those old school, long in the tooth, 
been around the school, nobody can tell you nothing kind of guys. And I said, Hey, I want to transfer. And I had, I had none of the, the academic qualifications. I didn't do my, you know, chemistry and biology and all those things. I didn't do them coming out of school. And, you know, I owe a lot to Dr. Eves because he said, look, I'm going to enroll you in this bonehead bio class. If you get a certain grade and you complete this anatomy class and you hit these grades, I'll take you in. I'll take your, your basically your, your um, I'll usher you in to the faculty of human kinetics. So he was going to walk me in through the door. And so I met the challenge and I did the biology and I did the anatomy. And he, sure enough, he got me access to the human kinetics, although I was not qualified uh, or I didn't meet the, the qualifications. And I think it was a year or so later that he officially retired and that door closed for so many. So had it not been for him, life for me would have looked different. Mm-hmm. And going into human kinetics really just kind of had me go, whoa. And at the university at the time had two streams. One was the science side and one was, was the business of sport side. And once I got exposed to the business of sport, it just kind of awoke something in me. Uh, in back of mind, I still wanted to teach. A lot of people would, you know, take that degree and go on and teach. But um, at the end of my fourth year, I was required to do an internship. And so they told me about what all the opportunities were. And I'm like, I don't want to do any of those. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up and the team that I love most was the Detroit Pistons. You know, I modeled my game after Isaiah Thomas. Joe Dumars, I was in awe. You know, we could go down the line. Dennis Rodman, Bill Lambert, James Buddha, Edwards. You know, I could do it all, my posters. So I hopped in my car and I drove across the border and went to the Palace of Auburn Hills and literally just started knocking on the door. It was summertime. I just knew I needed to get an internship. And I figured, well, why not do it for the team that you love? Why not do it with the Pistons? And I remember a security guard coming along out of the building. I mean, the parking lot was empty. There was nothing going on. And he's like, young man, what, what are you doing? And I said, hey, I just need to talk to somebody about doing an internship. And he shook his head and he ushered me off. He's like, this, that's not how it works. You got to get off property. It's private property. And he kicked me off. And I went back and I wrote letters. I mean, this is just when uh, when the internet was coming to be. <laughs> you know, it was the late <laughs> 90s in university. I just started, you know, writing emails to people and I just kept calling and I got a lot of no's up until the point at which a woman by the name of Mary Rogers, Mary Rogers was too nice to deliver a no on voicemail. She wanted to tell me in person. In person. And yeah, or sorry, over the phone, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. When when we finally connected, I went into I went into my 30-second sales pitch. I didn't yes. give Mary any any breathing room. And I said, Mary, let me just come on over and sit with you, meet with you for five, ten minutes. Let me just tell you why. And Mary, being as nice as she is, she couldn't say no. And so she agreed to meet me. So I drove back to the palace and uh, and met Mary. And I went into my 15-minute 15, 15 uh, sales pitch, all this time not knowing then that Mary was just trying to tell me no. Mm-hmm. And as luck would have it, because it was the right person at the right time, I said, hey, you know, Mary, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. And she says, look, I don't have any internship spots available. 
But if you're willing to be here at 9 a.m. every morning, you can sit on the end of my desk. And I said, Mary, I'll be here at 8.30 every morning. She's like, you know, it's an hour and a half drive in the traffic. I said, I know, Mary, I'll be here at 8.30 every morning. And so Mary is, because of Mary, I got my foot in the door in pro sports. And I sat on the end of her desk every day and I interned, not realizing until after the fact that, you know, I was applying in like May, but they hired their interns back in November, December. So they yeah, really yeah. had no, no, nobody to fill. And it was because of Mary that um, I got in and um, that internship experience then shifted my perspective. And actually the first day on the job, she was touring me around. And I remember walking down this, this hall, it was a corridor and it was blue carpet with gold stars on it. And on the walls, there were these pictures of like Rod Stewart, people who performed in concert, you know, all these rock stars and you get closer and then you see the pictures of the players. And sure enough, there's my guy Isaiah on this side and Joey D on this side. James Buddha is on this side. <laughs> and we're walking down the hall and my mouth is open. You know, I'm just in awe. This is these are the people I dreamed of as a kid. And down the hall, walking towards us was Nancy Lieberman Klein, mm -hmm. who at the time was the head coach and general manager. And I just I recognized her right away because I followed women's basketball. My heart's beating. I'm like, there's Nancy Lieberman Klein. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And Mary introduced me and she said, you know, Nancy, Seth was just starting with us his first day. He's going to be interning with us in marketing and sales. And he's a captain at the University of Windsor men's basketball team. And and Nancy interrupted. She said, you play basketball? I said, you know, yes, I do. She says, what position do you play? And I told her I play point guard. And she's like, we need a point guard for our men's scrimmage team that'll play against our women. Come on now. When? She says, well, we're going, we're going today at 3.30. And I looked at Mary and Mary smiled and she said, in typical Mary Rogers fashion, she nodded her head and she said, okay. She said, do you have your stuff? I said, I sure do. And, you know, I had a Chrysler Sundance and yes. I had my stuff in the back of the truck as every baller would back in those days. You know? Yes. I had it all there. And so that same day I walked into the practice facility and there you've seen the banners. Isaiah and you know I'm just like Come wow on, and uh, I ended up being on that men's scrimmage team and then segued that into having a seat in all teams things I mean I walked out that first day with a stack of six VHS tapes from one of the assistant coaches uh, a gentleman by the name of Steve Smith who's an assistant coach in the WNBA now and he gave me a stack of VHS and said hey this is what you want to do break it down. And he kind of gave me a sheet with, you know, all the tracking I had to do. And from that moment, I was in the locker room. I was in pregame, postgame, halftime. And that just awakened in me something that said, you know, this is, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing. And wow. so a couple of years back to, to bring the whole thing full circle, a couple of years back, Steve was an assistant with the Connecticut Sun. And I had the chance pregame. I just walked right up to him and I, I said, you, you won't remember me, but it's because of you that, you know, you gave me those six VHS tapes. And I just want to say thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm coaching now because you and Nancy and Mary, you guys opened this door for me and uh, I haven't mm -hmm. looked back since. That's unbelievable, man. That m might be one of the more unique stories we've heard. Holy smokes. 
But what happened with the internship? Like, did you just ditch Mary and then just hang out with the team for the rest of the year? Like, what did you did you do both? <laughs> did you do double duty? Like, you yeah. didn't blow her off yeah, on yeah. day one. Oh no 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 no! I I had to do I had to meet all my internship requirements. I did it all. You know, I I performed my job, and then she just gave me flexibility, such yeah. that if you know there was practice and and they needed me to be at practice, I could kind of dip out, but I would come right back. I'd do my jobs. I'd drive back over to Windsor. Do you remember how you played on that first day? Did you suck or were you all right? Hey, uh, (laughs) there is uh, is (laughs) videotape evidence. I didn't completely stink out the joint, but uh, my my heart was beating. I'll never forget. There was this uh, international player. Her name is uh, Corey Halede. Never heard of her before. And it was the most humbling experience. Because, you know, the arrogance of being a guy is yeah. like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to pick, you know, this player. I'm going to go after that steal. <laughs> and she beat me on three back doors. Like as soon as I turned my head, she's like, bam, finish. And she kept smirking. <laughs> it was annoying. And my ego, you know, and that's when I got a big dose of humble pie. And we they had a post player by the name of Wendy Palmer at the time. She laid an elbow on me as I cut through the paint one time. I mean, you know, those sharp elbows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was humbling. And um, it was such a phenomenal learning experience, both the level of basketball, the level of cognition, like how, how sharp thinkers they were, the competitiveness of the players, like Sandy Brondello was on that team, Jennifer Azy. You know, these are, these are, were phenomenal players. And so it moved quickly to, you know, I was humbled, but they didn't, they embraced me. And so then it was learning. Cause I was, I still had one year of eligibility, you know, I was going mm-hmm. back to play. And so it was the best of every world. Cause I was just soaking it all in. And so, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have traded it all in, but I, I, mm-hmm. I gained a respect for those women. I gained a respect for the women's game in a way I couldn't have if I hadn't been there. I loved women's basketball prior, but that was just different, you know, when you're behind the curtain and you see it all. And or probably the one thing. Elbow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say the one thing that shook me more than anything was the first time we did a clinic in Detroit in the community. And I'll never forget it. The look on this young girl's face, she probably would have been no more than five years old. And it was like she was looking up at a skyscraper, you know, and her mouth opened up and her eyes got big. And it was one of those, you're a basketball player kind of moments. Mm. And it, it was, but it was deeper than that. You know, it was like, you look like me, you're, you're female, you're black, you're Wow. You know, that's what, when you realize representation matters. And so that just, that moment, you know, is irreplaceable when you see the look on a, a young child's face and they look up at these women. I'm like, all right, yeah, yeah, this is home. This is, you know, this is where it's at. Knowing that you still had that year of eligibility, how were you able to sort of, what did you do? Did you go back and forth or like did you just calling those people when things started to wrap up? Like, what did that look like? I'm 
just curious to know there, like you had such a phenomenal experience, but knowing that there's still. Yeah, it was different times. And that's as well, speaking to how fortunate I was to cross the border at that time. All you needed was a letter from the university. Damn, That's it. You didn't have to do anything through immigration or anything. So I got a letter from our dean and my faculty saying I was doing an internship. It was unpaid. And I would just show that. And so I commuted every day. Once school started, again, you talk different times. I was, um, I, I just kind of transitioned and started doing stuff for both the Detroit Shock, which was the WNBA team, and the Pistons with their camps and clinics program. And that took me, so I started in, in May and that took me into the crossover our season into, I think, um, around December when things just got too taxing, but I was getting a little, little cash under the table. They just kind of gas money type thing. And, um, I tried to, to, to keep those relationships. But when, when I, when I left, I guess, once I stopped doing it, I never had like, how do I use these relationships for the next? I mean, the mm. relationships were all genuine but my, my time had come to an end and many of the, the interns who were in my class, so to speak, they had moved on to different experiences, some with the team, some had been hired on full-time, others had moved on to other job opportunities, but it was never this kind of uh, transactional thing where like, okay, how do I nurture this? How do I, it was like, no, if we were close and we had a, a kinship, we kept in touch. Mm. And um, I finished up at university and the lady, as I'll, I always affectionately refer to her, <laughs> she had uh, she was also at Windsor. She went back to do law school, and um, I decided, hey, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go back to Toronto, uh, be with her, and figure it all out then. Mm-hmm. And um, I had gotten an interview with uh, a mutual funds company called Dynamic Mutual Funds. And, um, you know, you know, you just got to make ends. You're trying to pay bills and, you know, we were renting and there was nothing on the horizon, the Toronto Raptors. So that would have been 2000, 2000. And, you know, the Raptors were still brand new. And, you know, again, you weren't thinking you're going to get a job with them necessarily, but, um, a friend of mine, our former team manager, he's going to hate me referring to him as a team manager, but that's what he was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Our team manager had gotten on with the Toronto Raptors. And so the day after I interviewed for this mutual funds company, I had been offered the job. But right before I got offered the job, my buddy, who was our team manager, so this is relationships, my buddy, who was my team manager, he and I sat together on the team bus for countless road trips during university. And he had he he'd graduated a year or two before me and had gotten on with the rappers kind of working his way up. And he called me, he said, Hey, one of my coworkers just went on mat leave. You got to come and interview for this job. And I was like, I just got offered. I mean, think, I think I got offered. It was like $30,000, which I'm like, Whoa, yeah, you know, $30,000 at the time was a lot of money. I said, I just got offered. He's like, no, 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 you have to come and interview. And so I had the audacity to go back to the mutual funds company. It was like Thursday or Friday. I went back to them and said, I appreciate the offer. I need the weekend to think about it. Oh, you pulled I that one. I interviewed. I did. Yeah. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I interviewed on the Friday for the mutual, or sorry, for the position with the Toronto Raptors. And 
then called them on the Monday. I had the audacity to say, you know, hey, I've got another offer on the table. I need to know, you know, I can't, I can't mm-hmm. leave this empty handed, you know. And fortunately, they offered me, uh, it was a nine month maternity leave contract position. And so I turned down the job with the mutual funds company to, to uh, do this contract position with, uh, with the Toronto Raptors. And so that then took me another step. But, you know, going back to our theme of relationships, you know, had I, you know, treated the manager like he was second class, had we not, you know, gotten to know each other, had he not, you know, you don't build that reputational currency. That's what I'll call it now. But back then it was just just relationships, you know, mm-hmm. I never would have known about that opportunity. And perhaps I would have been in mutual funds or would have gone back to teacher's college. But yeah, that was my path. And for, for those opportunities, I am grateful. I love it, man. Because uh, anybody that listens to the show a lot knows my brother was the manager at UBC. So he did his engineering degree and then five years managed the UBC men's team there in the in the mid late 90s. Right. So I have a soft spot for managers and always did from that moment on. He's my older brother. But you know, he loved hoop and always just wanted to be around it. So always love hearing those stories and, and connecting it back to those relationships again. Man, you got some crazy stories. I mean, you use word luck a few times, but I also think things have to do with timing, perseverance. You know, like you said, you're literally knocking on doors. I mean, how many people would be sick enough to drive across the border and just be like, I love the Pistons. I'm just going to knock on the stadium door. You know what I mean? Like it's so, I mean, when you look at your the things that you've done and, and the places you've been, there's some some persistence. Blah, 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 blah. There's some persistence and some hard work there too, right? And then it just, I mean, you just start. You can tell. You just start to see yourself as a coach, and you know, you get involved in CP in Ontario, and kind of just so many different experiences. NBA Asia, I believe, like so many cool opportunities. And isn't it beautiful what basketball can offer? I think it, people don't even realize when they start the game, what it can really do for you. Absolutely. You know, I, th- I think, you know, the one thing that I've come to learn is the job you want most is not going to be advertised. So I love that, you know, we, we touched on the Detroit shock. We just went with the Raptors. You know, again, I was able to segue my, my job with the Toronto Raptors to working with the Toronto Maple Leafs. That job wasn't advertised. I then went back to work for the Toronto Raptors, then on, then uh, in a different capacity, and then you know started to develop relationships with players as we were out doing. It was called basketball development at that time. That's when you know Vancouver was gone, and the Raptors had national rights, and so we were taking players and coaches across the country and doing camps and clinics and coach development, whatever needed to be done to grow the game at that time, you know, I developed a relationship with Sam Mitchell, who was the head coach of the Toronto Raptors at that time. And the NBA was just going on to hire, um, requiring teams to hire people in this role of player programs, player development. And I was one of the first people hired to the position across the league who had never played in the league. Well, that doesn't happen if Sam doesn't trust me because the thinking was always it had to be somebody who played in the league to understand of course, what these guys go through on a day-to-day. And to go back to what we had touched on earlier, I argued that they're people. Yeah, they're, their lived experience is somewhat different, but they're still people. And I understand people. And I'm showing you that I have the capacity to develop relationships with these players, although I haven't lived their life. And 
you know, Sam was really the one who took my resume in and and said, hey, we I want this guy. But yeah. that job wasn't advertised and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, you reference uh, UBC, uh, Jama Machalela. That was, that was my yeah. next but Yeah, you must have crossed paths. We've had Jama on the show. Okay. That's so, a triple OG right there. That's a great human hey, being. Oh, he's salt of the earth. L- l- literally. No, no. Yeah. I mean, you talk about somebody who lived their authentic self and has stayed that way regardless of their place. It's cool because I didn't want to bring it up because Sam, he talked about Sam, the same thing, developing a relationship with him and and Sam sort of, you know, sticking his neck out for him, right? And Jay Triano talking about developing a relationship with Sam. And and so it's cool. Must be the last name. It must be the last name. (laughs) Anyways, keep going. I'm glad you brought him up. I was like, I hope he's going to go there because Jamma's, man, that's. Yeah, Jamma's amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, you know, and, and Jay has done so much, so mm-hmm. much for so many, mm-hmm. um, you know, and um, but, you know, Gemma had uh, Gemma had interned. Gemma was an intern with Toronto when I was had already been there. Gemma mm-hmm. was I don't know if he shared this, but, you know, it's a beautiful part of his story. So I, I share it because it just speaks to his humility and the work he's put in, but we used to have a thing called the jam van, which is literally okay. a 20, 20 foot cube van that would travel around mostly around Ontario, but it was like a pop-up and Jamma, that was what Jamma did. And, but he never, he just did it greatly as he did everything. <laughs> and, you know, to make a long story short, Jamma had ended up in Asia working for the NBA. And when he, he relinquished that role, John picked the phone. He called me and he said, Hey, Seth, you know, I think you would love this. Would you consider? And so again, again, you know, I, that job wasn't advertised mm. and, you know, let, let's say Gemma was never my subordinate. Don't ever, I don't want anybody to think it, but you know, he was an intern while I was full time. Let's just say, of course, but we had a relationship that was on the same. I've, I've had the utmost respect for Jamma always, you know, he's just, he is who he is. And so if we don't have this relationship, and this opportunity pops up, he doesn't call. And, and it's because of JAMA that I segue into this international experience that really expanded my view on how the game comes to life globally. And I spent two years in Asia. We were based out of Hong Kong and had about 17 active countries. And, you know, the lady and the baby, you know, we did that <laughs> together and traveled. And that was two of the most enriching uh, experiences, which gave me a global perspective on player development, on leagues and structures, on the impact of culture, on how the game comes to life, how skills come to life. And so that sets me up for the next, you know? And so, yeah, I, 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 um, I mean, there's so many lessons through sport and so many relationships that have come through, through sports that I'm, I am forever grateful for, but you can kind of connect the dots pretty quickly. And I'll come back to good people mm-hmm. who've supported or held my resume um, when I wasn't in the room. Amazing, man. Keeping in mind, you know, just aware of time and things for you, you just talk a little bit before we find out how you feel about ketchup on macaroni. <laughs> what is like, what is a day in the life for a player development coach in the WNBA? Or just give us a little bit of nothing that's going to get you in trouble, but just sort of what does it look like for you on a daily basis? Um, it's a job. I think there's probably so much more to it than just the title itself, if that makes sense. So I'm just kind of curious as to, is it, 
are you responsible for the whole roster? Do you have a couple other coaches you work with that work with certain players? Like we had Scott Morrison, who used to be with the Celtics, right? Talking about how, you know, he was responsible for three or four certain players, right? So I'm just from a coaching perspective, super intrigued about that. Anything that you're, you're able to share? The one thing I will say is I recognize, and one of the things that has drawn me to the Washington Mystics is the, I'll call it a coaching team. Mm. Like the WNBA is different from the NBA in its, its size. You know, our staff isn't nearly as big. Our resources aren't as big, but what's unique about our group is it starts with Mike Tebow, who's our general manager and head coach. And then it extends right into the rest of our coaching staff. And it's the culture of that staff, which is one that, that keeps me wanting to come back and be a part of it and contribute. And, I say all that because although my title is director of player development, we have a very integrated approach to how we do things. So I'm responsible for all the players on our on our roster in okay. terms of their, their development. But I do see myself as being one piece of a bigger integrated support team. So we've got our strength and conditioning. We've got our athletic trainer. We've got a mental performance coach. We've got our nutritionist. You know, there's myself, and then there's our our coaching staff mm-hmm. as well. And so sometimes I'm just the, the the I guess the hub, if you will, where you know I don't sit down and I don't go, hey, you know, here's the plan for this athlete. You know, the way we do things is we sit as a coaching team and we come up with the development plans for all of our players. And a lot of times my role is more so to ask the tough questions. And one of the things that I've come, come to terms with over the years is the most important thing is alignment. And so we've ad- adopted this approach really that's, that's driven by me where I say, okay, look, we got to figure out what's for now and what's for next. And we need to figure out a ratio where we are touching on both of those things. We can't be reactive. And I've been fortunate to be around a lot of different uh, competitive environments, both in basketball and other sports. So and, hard and not to be that, that way. Yeah, so hard. Like, it's hey, a skill you work at. Yeah. You know, and so, so I'm zooming in and out from 30,000 feet to 3,000 feet, you know, where I'm going, okay, hold up. You know, we said that this player needs to develop these skills, but we're now reacting to she hadn't done it in the last game, right? That's that's not part of this plan right now. You can't, I don't think, exist s- successfully if you're you're you know you're going in a different direction all the time. I think there needs to be consistency, and I think that's one of the things that that, that we've done well, where we kind of agree, like okay, here, I, I, you know, with our group, you know, I talk a lot about, hey, what are the three things, you know, and so if we come up with a list of ten things this player needs to do, I'm always <laughs> like, all right, so if you could only choose five, what would they be? <laughs> You know, ah, cool, cool. So now if we could only do three, what could we, you know, I'm always kind of, kind of pushing that way. And then as well, then I'll then take, once we, we anchored on our plan, I go back and I'll say, okay, let's work together. So one of this player's three things are a physical thing Mm -hmm. for somebody else. It could be a mental, other people, it's a technical. So I'm always overseeing that plan. I'm like a B. So I move across our entire roster Although we do, it's not the traditional, like, these are my players. Yeah, where you, it's all you hands see a, on deck. 
We don't. And our, and mm-hmm. our size requires it, but it also, we treat it like this team is our team. We're all responsible. So if, if we know what I can hand off and vice versa, a coach could hand off to me because we know what this player's three things are. Mm-hmm. Right. So we shouldn't be correcting this other thing that would be hijacking the plan. And so sometimes I'm like, hey, so wait a second. And I noticed you guys are working on such and such. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I, I asked the question. <laughs> All right, well, cool. But so tomorrow we're going to get right back to, you know, the three things. <laughs> and I think our, our group is good for it. And it trickles into our, our video, you know, errors corrections team. We're good at having a focus, you know, one coach looking at one thing, another coach focused on another thing. Our head coach is, is, is phenomenal at giving uh, everybody a voice and calling on everybody. And so for those reasons, uh, it, this environment that, um, that he's created for us as a group has been challenging and enriching and just, it just rings true for me. It's perfectly aligned. I mean, it's hard to replicate, I think on any side, what, uh, what, um, he's been able to create for us as a coaching staff. So Sounds Long answer, like a, but I mean that no. that's that's what it is for us. I mean, we I have a seat at the table for everything, as do everybody in our coaching. Is, like there isn't a trade that doesn't uh, take place. Our draft picks, I mean, you you name it, logistics, mm. practice, planning. You know, we're we're all hands on, so our yeah. days are full, but they are rewarding. I love that. Where are we now? What do we need next? It's like, and you can apply that to not just basketball, right? Not just professional basketball. I mean, there's so many ways that you can apply that because it's that what's happening in our day to day, but where do we need to go in a little bit? If we don't have both those in our mindset, then we can't grow and we can't get better and we can't develop. I think that's great. And then um, sounds too like from that WNBA perspective of, yeah, it's smaller, so we have less resources, but it makes everybody more collaborative, right? And it and it, it sounds wicked. That's awesome. Don't worry about the length of the answer. It was great. Really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's a it's a true joy. Now, and don't get me wrong. We we uh, we're fortunate. Uh, the Washington Mystics are part of Monumental Basketball. Um, mm. So we've got the Washington Wizards right there. We practice at the same place. We're beneficiaries of a lot of interactions with their coaches. With you know, we share our medical. So we're in a, a an opportune situation, especially compared to most of the other teams in the W. Mm-hmm. But day to day, you know, it's it's us, and we kind of forge ahead. And um, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of it. They're a great group. We had a, an awful year, <laughs> if I can say it. You know, it was it was uh, awful in the sense that um, it wasn't the people. That, you know, even when you, every coach hits challenging years, but it was a challenging one for us on a lot of different levels. And I think it's the one thing that um, you know for me makes it ex- makes it exciting. Like, hey, got to get better. You know, it's often the answer. You know, when I wasn't playing, got to get better. You know, I got turned out from the got to get better. You know, that's the answer to so much. And, you know, we finished this challenging year and I, I love it. You know, uh, Coach T, he's been in at this thing for about 50 years. You know, he's coached with the best of them. And my man finishes up. We got to get better. And, you know, and I'm like, yes, we do. And, cause, and we're all leaning in on this vibe. Like, this is what we control. And every year he asks the same question. We got to find an edge. How are we getting better? 
And that's how I'm wired, right? I'm always like, hey, how do I get better? And so everybody in their their respective area just kind of goes out and says, okay. So for me, player development, like, okay, how are we how are we becoming world class? You know, what are we doing for tech? Call our mental performance coach all the time. I reach out to our strength and conditioning. You know, she's with the Wizards. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Like, how what are we bringing back? You know, what do you want me to look at? You know, our coaches are out there doing the same thing on tactics. We're always meeting and talking. We've got special assignments in the off season. And, you know, that for me just rings true. It's like, all right, this is the environment. Like, that's how I'm wired too. I get it, man. You don't sleep. Um, You'll have to text me some of your favorite reads, man, especially in the mental side of sport and stuff. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. But um, how do you feel about just listening to you speak and your passion and everything? How do you feel about the direction of, you know, just women's sport in general? You know, we've had Kim Smith on the show We've had Ace Koenig as well, kind of just, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, ballers, man, like studs, right? And so, yeah. and just good people. We had Ace in camp with us this past, yeah. this past year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know some of them, you know, they say that you know, we're happy with where it's going, but it can be better. How, how do you feel as someone who's involved in the day-to-day? Are you excited about where it's going at least? And do you think it's conti- going to continue to go in the right direction and, and get the support and kind of backing that it truly needs? I'm like I'm thrilled. thinking of your analogy, sorry, I'm thinking of that analogy of the skyscraper, right? Looking up at that girl and, wow, look at this dominant black woman in front of me who I can strive to be like now. And now it's happening more and more. How do we get it so there are more and more of that, you know? Well, it goes back to, you know, what I touched on earlier, but in terms of representation and, and increased exposure, mm-hmm. you know, when you travel... And again, I get to be on the the periphery as much as the women's game has grown and as much as exposure is greater than it's ever been. Viewership, the numbers speak for themselves. It's still both thrilling in its naivete and frustrating when you still have those, whoa, moments. As you're traveling through airports or as you have people who don't know the W kind of bump into you, you're like, dang, man, after all these years, 25 years, we're still having these moments. And so you realize there's still there's still another leap that needs to take place, both in terms of coverage, eventually compensation. Um, but I think preceding that is going to be the narrative around women's sport it is evolving but it's not right where it needs to be and i think a lot of that falls to decision makers it falls to having diversity in the rooms but i'm not talking that you know diversity of thinking in the rooms to look at the same problem with a different set of eyes and and i think that's that's required as well to really help things go but what i do love about being a part of this league Especially, you know, when you you just kind of narrow in on the last two years in terms of what these women have done to step out and be at the forefront of massive issues. It it rings true for me. I mean, basketball is what we do, but it's not who we are. At the end of the day, you've got a group of women of, of different identities and backgrounds and interests and biases, and, and they're stepping out and kind of saying... Hey, this is who we are, 
And this is what we believe is right or wrong, regardless of whether you're comfortable with it. And, you know, it's special to be a part of. It's special to be around. And so, yeah, you know, I think there's there's more that needs to be done. But the game is in a good place. And, and, and I'm excited for this, this next wave of talent to come through to see what it can be and continue to grow to be. Well said, man. And we're excited for you to continue to help grow the game. And, and this is, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to get you on because we were trying our best to also give more exposure to the women's game as well and, and get as many people involved. And that's one of the things that really stuck with me with Kim and Ace, especially, I don't know if you know, Teresa Kleindienst, former national team point guard. Yeah, she was on the show as well. And just kind of give us those opportunities, give us opportunities like this podcast or other voices and allow people to see our faces and make us familiar, right? And it really hit me like it's it stayed true, you know, being someone who played university and you know what it's like. And in that time, it was like the girls would play before us. There'd be unless you were a top three team in the country, you know, like the Brandon women were very good. There was 50 people and then our game would be sold out and you couldn't get a ticket. Right. And it was just like, why does it have to be that way? You know, so it's good. We need a lot of people like yourself. And, and like you say, the women that are involved in the league um, to keep pushing because it's important. So thanks for sharing that. No, and absolutely, and, ba- and baby steps. You know, I know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, in 2019, we had a, we had a great season, and yet there's so many friends and colleagues, coaching colleagues, you know, in the basketball world who are like, I can't get your game still. Mm-hmm. And I know it improved in 2020, and I know going to this season, there's been increased exposure. But it was a lot like when I was a kid growing up in Toronto, and I couldn't see the game. You, sport you know, you, yeah. you, you do need to see it to be it. It needs to be in the top 10. Yeah. You know, it can't just be an afterthought. There needs to be more mention of it. It needs to be in the the daily conversation. And that's where I say it comes down to decision, decision uh, makers, decision influencers, having diversity of thinking in the room when they're coming up. You know, when you're in these production rooms and you're talking about who makes the top 10 and you're talking about a lot of times is that that blind spot you have where you're not even thinking like, hey, we should see what happened in women's, you know, or not even see. We should know what's happened in women's sport. And there's no question that that play should be in there. But if, if you have a blind spot for it, you're not even thinking, hey, Dinah Taurasi just had a phenomenal semifinal, you know, like you're not even mm-hmm. thinking it because you don't watch, you don't consume it. It's not being shown. And so we need more of that Unapod- unapologetically presenting women's sport in the same way we unapologetically present men's sport and boys sport. When you do that, things will change when it's on the TV and people, you know, can see it, you know, it'll change, but that takes, uh, it takes a little bit of a leap. Although we're now seeing the numbers are starting to, you know, to justify, you know, the thing. You know, so many years people said, oh, we can't. We don't know about viewership. And now the business of the business is kind of going to hold the mirror up to some of these sponsors yeah. and producers and executives to say, time will tell. All right, man. Some fun questions we'll get you on your way. This has been great. Super knowledgeable guy. Unbelievable. People give him, give you a Google search and tap into your website. I, I'm going to subscribe and you can send me some nuggets. I'll give you a high five after this on your website <laughs> there. You got that thing. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I checked you out, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Dead or alive. 
doesn't matter who, you and the lady or a good friend, whoever you choose, any concert, best seat in the house, who are we going to see? Prince. Prince, and if not Prince, uh, Michael Jackson. But dang, I feel old. But hey, man, like it's one of the biggest regrets of my life is not uh, getting to see Prince. They just don't make them like that. So literally, I like that. I like that call. Yes. Yeah. Mike would be a nice one, too. I saw like some silly TMZ. Someone caught his son on the sidewalk the other day and they said, like, did you know that Drake has surpassed Michael for something or whatever? And do you think he's better than him? And he, and he kind of paused and he was walking, you know, as TMZ follows. And he says, I have the utmost respect for Drake. And, I, you know, you can't take away everything that he's done. But come on, man. It's like my, my dad changed music forever. Something, something to that effect, right? It was like, there's never going to, no one's ever going to surpass my dad. I was like, well said. Yep. You're here. You're getting a little munchy and you're going to break the diet for a day. What bag of chips are you going to grab? What's your favorite bag of chips? <laughs> a young version of me might have said, you know, ketchup or salt and vinegar, but those things, I purge most of those things out of my diet. Uh, I'm more <laughs> of a uh, tortillas kind of guy. Okay. Some salsa or no? Ah, guacamole, no doubt. Yes. Salsa is optional, but guacamole, I'm all about my guac. There we go. Okay. Um, who's, who's, who's been some of the most important people in your life? The lady, hands down. <laughs> Prior to her, you know, there's been so many people who've spoken into my life, you know, family, uh, both the good and bad. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a product of um, the path that they've blazed for me and the nudges that they've given me. Um, and so for that, I'm grateful. Awesome. Along your journey here, between being a player, coach, everything, who are some of the greatest players either you played against or coached against that you've been like, wow, that's a tough check right there. You know, maybe there's someone in Windsor and maybe there's someone at the pro level. Any, and everyone feels bad like they're going to forget someone, but just fire away whoever comes to mind. Oh, my gosh. Chet would definitely want me to say that it was Chet Wajerinski. <laughs> so I got I to gotta big him up. And, and But as a teammate, uh, you know, he doesn't qualify. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there were so many, you know, uh, in the university days, you know, the, the guys that um, gave me the business who I looked to were Manawatsa, played at the University of Waterloo, all Canadian. Jamie Duncan played at Brock, mm-hmm. all Canadian. I mean, those are the guys who I was like, I got to be, I at least keep up with them, you know, as a, as an athlete during my playing days. Those those are the ones in the summers that pushed me, you know. Did Brock win it? Was did Brock win the title around then? They no, not no. I don't okay. not when uh, I was '95 to 2000. Um, Brock, I'm quite positive, did not win it during that time. I believe they won it before. Before, definitely. okay. It was earlier than yeah, that. Okay. Ken Shield, okay. yeah. And so those are the guys who jumped to mind. You know, there was tons of teams like Mac, Western, Steph Barry. Like, those guys just give you fits. Mm. You know, those, those teams were so good, so great. So that would be the playing days. You know, having coached uh, Elena Deladon most currently is a sight to behold. Like it's, you know, even the guys on the wizard side, player and coach alike, they sit there and they watch your work and they're just in awe. 
Like really? I'm, I'm the, the purest, cleanest jump shot I've ever seen. And, and I say that with all humility, I've seen some pretty sweet uh, games up close in person, either having watched them, coached them, whatever. But mm-hmm. Elena is, she's, she's a rare breed, man. So she's special. You know, my Toronto days haven't been, you know, um, on the side of the court watching Vince work, Vince Carter, sorry. That was something that was really special to, to, to see. You know, he was just, he was doing with the basketball, what we used to do in our, our bedroom with the Nerf ball, you know, like yeah, that was yeah. just, I mean, that was just so rare. And sure. m- most recently, you know, having a little snapshot into Russell Westbrook's ethic. Mm. You know, again, having been around some people over the years, men and women, uh, basketball and in other sports, just watching that ethic was it was that's rare. I mean, that's the rarest of rare. You know, you look you look look at, you know, and I I call it the iceberg illusion. You know, most of us just get to see what's above the surface. But I mean, that guy would finish finish on the road, land in you know, in DC three, four in the morning and be at the gym eight o'clock, seven thirty, you know, like clockwork. It's rare, that kind of ethic. So that, um, is from a recency standpoint, that one just has left a a strong taste in my mouth. Like, wow. Mm. So those are some names that come to mind. I know I'm missing some greats in between, but, and, uh, people, this is an audio, so people won't be able to, but your face said everything when you were talking about Westbrook there. You just like your whole demeanor changed talking about his ethic. It was like mm-hmm. intensity. And I think I think sometimes that guy maybe gets a bit of a bad rap, right? But I mean, you you know, when you get to see the work that these people put in, you realize, man, there's different human beings, man. <laughs> How do you feel about ketchup on macaroni? Ketchup on macaroni? Mm-hmm. Oh, you see, you said on. I thought you were gonna say or. No, hmm. that's sacrilege. I'm sorry. It's just I'm not about it. I so know I've grown ap- up. With- nothing to apologize about, sir. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They, they're not supposed to go together. You're right. Thank you. Here, here. <laughs> Do you read a lot? Do you have time to read? Try to read? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I don't never read enough, but uh, I've got books all around me. Yep, yep. I've probably got ten on the go. Okay. So is there an all-timer that you want to share with the people or something that you're reading right now that you think, hey, go out and grab that book? Oh, man, that's tough. All-timer? I, I can't say I have you know, all-timer. And we okay. have to go by uh, category or, or, or niche. Okay. It's a whole other podcast, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you, um, you know, what I'm reading right now. So I, I am... You know, I don't read a lot of fiction anymore. I used to read a ton of fiction. So my references for all time are like, you know, The Alchemist and things along that line, which I, I love. But, you know, I read things that are in my lane. This is what I love to do. So, you know, I'm rereading uh, Doug Lamov's book, The Coaching Guide to Teaching, which is phenomenal. Um, really anchoring in how the brain, the body and emotions come to life and how we can, you know, teaching good teaching pedagogy is he an australian dude no he's american no okay all right yeah sorry carry brilliant. on brilliant yeah no no Bril- just absolutely brilliant and and challenges how you teach and, and what we do you know i think traditionally coaches we treat it like it's more of an art but it's um it's way more informed and there's way more evidence to challenge convention 
And I think uh, us and the big four sports in North America are slow to adopt and adapt. So mm-hmm. I'm rereading that um, on my desk. Actually, so I'll take people in places maybe they, they hadn't gone before. I'm reading a book by Matthew Dix called uh, Story Worthy. I've been listening to him on a podcast and he really triggered something in me. Again, this goes back to, you know, the people in the equation and the power of story. But really the essence of it is how do we how do we move the needle with somebody? Well, we have to make a connection. Well, how do we make a connection? Our words matter and how we say them matter and how we present something. And mm-hmm. so he's um, regarded as one of the best storytellers in modern history. Those who follow the moth will know Matthew Dix. He's won more, I think, than anybody of these storytelling competitions. So this is my nighttime reading. There we go. And then uh, I'm reading next up, I should say, is um, Adam Grant's Think Again. I am uh, been really turned on. I'll, I'll, I can go on forever on this, but the last one, uh, you know, is a challenge book for others. Is an author by the name of Clint Smith. The book is called How the Word is Passed. And so, yeah, Clint is, uh, I got turned on to him this summer when I was listening to a couple of podcasts that he had been interviewed on and was just riveted. And so I just uh, picked up his book this summer and brought it back and I'm um, excited to jump into that. How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. That title sounds cool. Um, awesome. Thanks for those, man. going to going to look into some of those for sure. Two questions for you. The one's the most nauseating question ever. Who do you think's the GOAT? Or who was your GOAT? Who did you cheer for when you were loving basketball as a, as a youth? Well, I told you before, I, I was I was bad boys for life. Okay, so, you know, is I, so Isaiah by far? Hold up. So I need to preface it because I don't, I don't jump around, but that was my team. And so as a consequence of that, you hate MJ. It's fine. It's I, fine. I re, I respected him, mm-hmm. uh, but I could I couldn't cheer for him. Yeah, but for no. me, for me, hands down. And I have this argument with our players, uh, one of our players in particular. But yeah, I mean, if 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 you have to choose a team, uh, I'm going to take MJ. And I don't believe in goat. I don't believe in goats. These 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 kids trying to pluralize things. I'm like, no. There's one and only. And so it's MJ. No, no, no disrespect to, you know, the Bill Russells and the LeBron James, et cetera. But I'm, I'm taking MJ all day. I actually, right to my, my left, I have a, a one. It's an autographed Isaiah Thomas Mitchell Ness jersey. It's framed in my. Oh, yeah. come on. Yeah, I'm serious. Dang, I wish I could turn I'm the jealous. camera. I'll text all you a picture right. after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm have jealous. You, have you had a chance to come across Al Whitley at all? With the Mavericks, Canadian guy works for the Mavs. No, no. Yeah, he was on the show too. He's fr- he's from out west, but kind of uh, has worked his way into a nice role with the Mavs. He sent me an autographed uh, Dirk jersey too. So that's a good friend. No pressure. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> okay, my man, this has been great connecting with you, and um, really enjoy like your spirit, your energy. Very intellectual, smart guy. Would love to see you coaching. I, I think it would be a you know a unique experience, but. And knowing that you have years and years left to impact people and do your thing. But up until this point, if you could do it all again, you would what? I think I would listen more deeply. I would journal more fully. And I would get better at asking better questions. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to ask a question back. That was a great answer. That's great. Any last reflections before we let you go? 
I appreciate you having me on. It's always great being able to share one story, but more importantly, support people in Canada, Canadians who are, are you know, and I look back through uh, all the names of so many greats and so many people that um, either knowingly or unknowingly had impacted me, whether it be me sitting on the edge of, a, of, of the gym at a coach's clinic or, you know, having been seen them on TV or played against them or watched them play. You know, there's so many in Canada are doing so many great things. It's pretty exciting to see. And, and you know, you're chronicling it, which is exciting. You know, it, those in Canadian basketball will know the name Dale Stevens. And yes, you know, all he had done. Yeah, I mean, well done. Yeah, I mean, he was like ahead was, of his time, man. What he was able to yeah. do, like, he was crazy how much work that guy put in. Yeah. Wow, great Talking name, thankless, thankless words. But that's when I, you know, as I was going through um, your Instagram and looking at the people who've been on, it felt like that kind of a feeling like you're, you're capturing so many stories of so many people who, um, who all directly or indirectly are contributed to what we're seeing in terms of the pipeline of player and caliber of coach that's coming out, um, not just at the highest ends, but at all levels of the performance pathway. So, you know, respect to you for doing it. It's great. And I'm grateful to be able to share, even if in some small way. Thanks, man. Not small for sure. I mean, for me personally, as a teacher and coach and father lots of takeaways and um that's selfishly been the greatest part is connecting with people hearing their stories and you know like you said you can learn so much through storytelling and we don't do enough of it so and and coach rana talked about it on the previous episode too just you know you're you're sharing stories and we've done a bad job of that in canadian basketball he said you know we, we need to do mm-hmm. a better job of that so in our little small way we've we're, we're doing our best and um your story is a great one and we're super thankful that you were able to be with us enjoy that family time we know the chaos is around the corner um on the basketball standpoint so you know take it in while you can and um and hopefully the commute will be a little bit better this season coming up for you i appreciate it thanks so much yeah my man blessings to you thank you to our sponsors parkside brewery and good Lad clothing and we'll see you on the next episode